Today, we are entering into the Christmas season, and I thought we would do a series, a short couple-week series entitled Hopes and Fears. And they, comes out, it comes out of this song from um, O Little Town of Bethlehem. I'd like to share that with you for a moment. But as a brief introduction to this series and this time that we have, uh, as we celebrate Christmas and all of the cultural elements that come with it, as well as all of the beautiful biblical elements that come with it, um, as well as all the family elements, Christmas is a time and our story, our Christian story, is actually one that is filled with hopes and fears. And for those of you who have been following the news recently, um, and including the now another shooting um, at a Planned Parenthood in Colorado, and the continual news that is developing, whether it be Syria, or whether it be Russia, or whether it be Egypt, or whether it be local tragedies, whether it be just name the things that are going on. The cycles and seasons that we're in, for example, this time where the earth is turned in such a way that we are entering into now the darkest season of our existence, brings with it all of the implications of that. Great hopes of this beautiful season and the celebration of light coming into a very dark world. And so as we read the news and consider deeply about the kind of world that we find ourselves in, and as we have wrestled, especially over the last couple weeks with our good friend Omer sharing and Danielle sharing a couple messages in response to the tragedies that we've seen in the news, and if you haven't heard those messages, I highly recommend and encourage you to check those out as we figure out our response to all these things. The phrase, hopes and fears seems to be an appropriate phrase to encapsulate the very diverse set of emotions, perspectives, levels of spirituality that I think we all face. Great hopes, great excitement about what is to come, great joy and celebration in the thing that we know is coming our way through Jesus, through redemption, through salvation, through rescue, coupled with continual sense of fear, Maybe anxiety, uncertainty about what the future might happen to hold. And I'd like to remind us, and Omer touched on this last, uh, a couple weeks ago when he shared, I'd like to remind us that the world that Jesus enters into was not a world filled with Christmas trees and red bows and Santa and hot chocolate. It was not a world filled with all of those nice, bright, celebratory elements. The world of Jesus was actually a world that was extremely dark. If you read about Roman history, you read about slavery and the oppression and the way in which this particular civilization was built was essentially on the backs of people that had no citizenship, had no rights. Does that sound familiar to our particular day? The ancient Romans were also famous for their circuses, which is where you put human suffering on display for the sake of our own entertainment. There's a famous Latin phrase in ancient Roman literature called, literature called pan et circuses. It's bread and circus. The idea that our sustenance, Rome is the one who provides our sustenance, the, Rome is the one who provides our food, but Rome is also the one who provides our entertainment. And of course, all of that is built upon the backs of slavery and on the, backs, and on the blood of the people. 
If you read about these emperors, Greek and Roman emperors, they were absolutely insane. They had all sorts of oppressive regimes and putting people in such dire straits so that their kingdoms, their divinity, their power could be protected. Uh, There was even this practice called ordered suicides that if you didn't like one particular aristocrat or another governor in your province, you could order them to commit suicide. And if you didn't do that, well, then you were facing the punishment of execution. So you had one of two choices in that particular sense. Many of you know about the religious persecutions, most famous with Nero um, in that particular time of burning Christians at the stake, blaming them, scapegoating them because of the destruction of Rome. And all of that persecution goes back even earlier. This was a time where torturous penalties were uh, instituted and most famously, at least in our tradition, crucifixion, this brutal execution from, borrowed from the Babylonians that Rome perfected. So as we enter into a Christmas time and a Christmas season, again, something that Omerick touched on, we have to remind ourselves that the world in which Jesus entered into was a world that was extremely dark, that had particular messages of hope if you submitted to the empire, if you submitted to the culture that was. But submission to that particular culture meant torture, meant persecution, meant taxation, meant all sorts of horrible, horrible things that were existing. And if you want to talk about fear, if you want to talk about uncertainty, if you want to talk about anxiety, you can talk about the first century. So as we enter into this season, and as you watch the news, and as we all together maybe stand or sit in solidarity and astonishment at the way in which things today continually unfold, and how do we make sense of all of that? How do we engage, and how do we converse, and how do we explain? How do we go out into this world? How do we walk out of our church uh, community and try to have a wonderful conversation or at least a productive conversation about God's love and God's redemption when all of that stuff is going on? That's the question that I feel like we need to address during this particular season. It's encapsulated with the hopes and fears. Jerome already mentioned that today is the beginning of Advent, the coming of the King. And there's this prayer that was put out by the Episcopal Church that I thought we would just start with, to set our hearts and our minds in an appropriate place, to posture ourselves, to prepare for this coming, and to prepare for whatever uh, message God might have to say to us today. And here is the prayer. If you would like, you can recite it out loud with me. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now in this time of this mortal life in which your son Jesus Christ came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty, to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to life immortal. Through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And that prayer, coupled with the title that I've selected for this season, I think is very, very appropriate for this thing that we must now wrestle with. So this song... Uh, This is a song that many of us all know. This is the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. It's a really beautiful arrangement of this famous hymn. So we're entering into Christmas, so get in the mood. Here we go. O little town of Bethlehem, 
how still we see thee lie. And I love the lyrics, at least of this first phrase, above thy deep and dreamless sleep. The silent stars go by. And these hymn writers were really um, effective and they were really thoughtful. Thy dark streets, in dark streets, shines this everlasting light. And then this phrase that I think encapsulates the season, the hopes and the fears of all of these years are now met in thee tonight. And so what are these hopes and these fears? I imagine for many of us, hope and fear is the exact situation that many of us oscillate between. You ping pong back and forth. Some of you are spiritually and emotionally bipolar. It's totally okay. You're in good company. At one particular moment, things are really, really good. You have great hope, great expectation, great excitement for the future. And then immediately something happens or a twist happens or you are reminded of something and immediately you're cast into fear, uncertainty, trepidation, anxiety about what the future is going to hold. And all you have to do is spin the wheel. (laughs) And that particular emotion emerges. And I would suggest to you that this idea, this concept, that hope and fear are two things that we have to live with, this tension that we live with, uh, that is a description of reality that all of us have to face and that we will probably carry with us for the rest of our lives. And so as we enter into this Christmas season, I'm going to challenge us to actually hold this tension. There is justification for fear. Even though there was mention, and there is in the scriptures, fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not. Again, it's like, but they were afraid. There's a reason why the angel had to say this over and over and over. You're kind of a freaky thing right now happening, and I'm really not quite sure what's going on. And then there is also this great justification for having hope in the midst of fear, for believing desperately in what the future is going to hold. And so, this season and this series is about holding these two things in tension and figuring out how to manage emotionally spiritually, with a discipline, how to manage hope and fear partnered with one another, intention with one another, and you hold both of these in your heart and in your hand. Today, I'd like to ask the question, what do we do when tragedy strikes? And I'd like to address the subject of evil. And it's going to come into the theme of hope and fear. But I'm going to do my best to capitalize on Omer's and Danielle's talk from the last couple weeks and try to tackle this particular subject of evil and do my best to try to provide a framework and an explanation for understanding, again, this tension that that evil exists in the world and what are we to do about that evil that exists in this world. When tragedy strikes, whether it be sickness, whether it be news, whether it be pure forms of violence, 
Christians and religious people have all sorts of potential responses. You have said these. You have had them said to yourself. You've seen this on the news. The first particular response is to instantly provide a reason or a rationale for why this is. Omer hinted at this, that there is a purpose and a plan. Clearly, we see that this tragedy is not a great thing that is happening, but I will tell you, because I have some great religious insight, that there is a reason and a purpose for this thing that has happened. And that's explanation number one. That's one particular way to address it. And there's people in this room and listening to this message who find great comfort and great solace in knowing that there is a reason and an explanation. There's a second side that I think also exists in this room, which is there is no reason that you could ever give me that would make me feel better about this horrible thing that has just happened. And don't you dare try to open your mouth or give me some sort of theological platitude or a bumper sticker that's going to try to make me feel better. I don't want to hear it. This thing just sucks. Yes? Do both of those things exist here? Yes. Now, Spark has always been this place for our existence that's trying to hold some tensions together. And for those of us who are on, the other, on one side where we say, yes, there's an explanation, I'd like to provide for you some comfort, some support, some encouragement. And for those of you who are on this other side are saying there is no explanation, I'd also like to provide for you some support and encouragement and try to do that in one single explanation of this thing called evil. It's a great attempt. I feel like it's a little bit audacious. I hope that it is a conversation starter, not a conversation ender, as we have talked about before. But this is my hope. And I, I think what I'm going to attempt to do is try to explain why both of those exist. Why somebody on the news can give a very clear explanation for why this tragedy exists. And you, watching the news, are yelling at the TV screen to shut up because that is not an explanation that is helpful. Why do those two things exist? Well, I think it's found in a definition and an understanding of evil, something that we actually don't want to talk about much. In fact, using the word evil feels evil to us. Like, why should we ever list or name anything that is evil? Now, theologians and philosophers have noticed that evil has this uh, kind of spelling thing with the devil, and you can, if you continue to follow after the devil and you just drop the D, then you will become evil. And they continue this and they perpetuate this, that evil is actually this subversive set of vileness underneath every single one of you. If you continue to follow the devil, then you're going to continue to fall into evil, and then you will just become a vile human being that only gets worse and worse because Underneath that is that you are ultimately ill. You are sick to the core of your existence and your being. And if you continue to follow the devil and be this evil, vile, ill, sick person, you will end up in hell. Hell, hell is where you don't want to be. And several preachers and philosophers have taken a look at that and said, the whole gamut of all of these horrible things that exist within us are found within all of that. Today, I'd like to share with you just a little bit of a different definition of evil. Several years ago at King's Academy, where I work, one of the teachers 
took their students through the book Night by Elie Wiesel. And if you know this book, it's about his, uh, it's a little bit of a memoir of his journey through the Holocaust of the 1940s of World War II. And so she has asked me to come in to share some reasons or some explanations for how in the world could this, what we might call evil thing, how does this exist? How could God allow this particular thing to happen? And so I'd like to share with you a little bit of what I've shared with those students. I take them through the Holocaust Memorial, Yad Vashem. And for those of you who have gone to Israel with us, you've been here. You know what a powerful um, and extremely important moment this is in our trip, to walk through this memorial and to remember what has happened, what has taken place. There's all sorts of stories. There's thousands of stories that could be told. This is the actual memorial here, and as you can see, as you, the building itself is cut into the mountain, and it is constructed, architected that specific way to describe how the Holocaust is cut straight through the heart of the Jewish people. You can see six blocks on this particular side, three blocks on this side, six blocks on this side, and of course in the middle you see the Star of David in that particular arrangement with the spear piercing right through the heart. Here's an actual train and boxcar. One of the things, one of the locations that we stop off is the Children's Memorial, where 1.5 children under the age of 16, were, who, their lives were also taken in the Holocaust. And Yad Vashem also has beautiful, wonderful stories of what are known as righteous Gentiles, non-Jewish people who helped Jews escape from this horrible tragedy. And one of the most uh, touching stories is a guy by the name of Janusz Korczak. He was a Polish orphanage um, oversaw an orphanage in Poland. And the Nazis didn't know that he was Jewish, but all of the children that were orphaned were Jewish. And the story goes, and sum it up very briefly, that they came for the children and said, tomorrow we're going to ask for you to load up all the children and we're going to take them. And Janusz Korczak said to the children that day, tomorrow we're going to go on a special trip. And of course, by this time, he knows exactly what's going to happen. So we're going to go on this special trip. I want you to dress up in your Sabbath best. Pack a lunch. Get ready for this exciting trip. And the story is told that Korchak, along with all of the children for the orphanage, hopped, skipped, sang songs. And he, with the children, even though the Nazis didn't require it of him, walked into the gas chambers and perished with the children. So you have this amazing mix of tragedy and beauty, solidarity, all of that mixed in this experience of Yad Vashem. Obviously, there's a lot more to share about that particular memorial, but it is one of those examples of darkness, of tragedy, and of evil that exists in this world. And so as I was sharing with the kids after they've already read through the book Night by Elie Wiesel, I ask one simple question. This is the question that he ultimately emerges. And this is the question that we're all trying to ask, as I mentioned earlier, by saying, well, there must be a reason or there is no reason. The, ultimately, the question, why? Why? Why all this darkness? Why all this pain? Why all of these tragedies? Why all of these shootings? Why all of these corrupt governments? Why all of the murder? Why all of the torture? Why, 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 why? 
And here we find ourselves now in the tension. I want to say again that I think I find myself in a very perplexing and complicated space because people have attempted, theologians and teachers and pastors and preachers and philosophers have attempted to address this question for hundreds if not thousands of years. So I enter into this humbly with a little bit of trepidation. This is the fear side of what's going on. This is called the theodicy triangle. Theodicy triangle is a way of describing how do you explain or how do you address the question of why. The word theodicy comes from two words, theos, which means God, and dike, which means justice or righteousness. So the word theodicy just simply means how can God be just in these things that we see happening here? And all of us are what some would call armchair theologians in this particular sense. All of us at one particular point, around the dinner table, around the water cooler, are going to have these conversations about why do all of these bad things happen? What do we do with all of these injustices that happen in the world? And the theodicy triangle has been a framework to try to suggest that there are at least three things that people attempt to explain uh, that help us make sense of these tragedies. The first is that God is good. This is obviously a, a premise that Christianity would affirm. God is absolutely good. The th second piece of that puzzle is that God is all-powerful. There's big theological words for this, the like omnibenevolent, God is all-good, uh, omnipotent, which is God is all-powerful. So these are two things that Christianity absolutely affirms. If those two are the case, if it's true that God is good, and that God is all-powerful, then the question is, what happens in this third segment of this dilemma? And a lot of people put there, well, then people, when we suffer, when tragedy happens, it doesn't happen unjustly. There must be a reason. And that's what we would put, at least I would put there, as evil. Other ways of addressing this particular issue, cut off this side of the triangle, God actually is not good. Or cut off this side of the triangle, God is actually not powerful. However you try to address this issue, it is virtually impossible to keep all three of these together. And when you hear religious people say, well, the reason why such and such happened, the reason why tragedy exists, the reason why these bad things are happening, is because dot, dot, dot. And as soon as you fill in the blank, dot, 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 you have given a reason for the tragedy. You've given a reason for the suffering. You've given a reason for this horrible thing that has happened. And therefore, you have to cut off this side of the triangle. It can't be evil. It can't be that you are suffering unjustly, because unjustly means that there is no reason. And so this is the framework that a lot of people use. And I would imagine that if you think back to the conversations that you have had, or think back even to the only wrestlings that you've had in your heart, you have had to wrestle with all three of these. Is God actually good? Okay, God could actually be all good, but then is he actually all powerful? Which leads to other kinds of theologies that, okay, I can believe that God exists, but he actually doesn't do anything in this world, which means that he's not all powerful. 
as we address this question of why, I'd like for us to consider a couple points. Number one, pain and suffering is a problem for everybody. I often hear, and I've been in uh, conversations with people who don't believe in God, uh, along with people who do believe in God, who are theists or atheists or agnostics or anywhere in in between, and I have received, uh, I've been on the receiving end of, this is a big problem for you, isn't it? Because you believe in a good God, believe, because you believe in a powerful God, and all these bad things. How do you reconcile this issue? Is it a problem for those of us who believe in God? Yes. But guess what? It's a problem for you, even if you don't believe in God. If you ever feel like you get backed into a corner as somebody who believes in Jesus or believes in God who has a faith and somebody says to you, well, you have a problem, I would like for you to just take comfort in knowing that, well, we all have this problem. It doesn't matter what your theological premise is. It doesn't matter what your belief system is. It doesn't matter what your faith construct is. Every single one of us on this planet have this problem. Number two is going to be a little bit more controversial. I'm going to suggest that suffering and pain is actually a bigger problem for those who don't believe in God. That if there is no reason, if there is no rationale, if there's no hope, there's no redemption, and if we're all just deterministic atoms doing whatever it is that we do, then that might actually be a bigger problem. And then number three, as we go into trying to address this particular issue, pain and suffering is perhaps the greatest test of our faith and our belief. And as we enter into this dark season, as we enter into this Christmas season that is light and dark, as we watch the news and we try to make sense of all of this, this right here for me, for my life, has always been the crux of how does this faith, how does my belief, how does my trust in a loving and good God work itself out in this reality? So here's my argument. Here is my fundamental argument for the existence of evil and for how we address this situation. Any answer that you ever give to any tragedy is always going to be insufficient. You've seen it on the news. The reason why Katrina happened is because of these particular groups of people, right? Oh, does that that suffice? The reason why you have a disease is because there must be sin in your life. The reason why this horrible thing has happened is because, and then you start scapegoating all sorts of different reasons. And what I'm going to suggest to you is that any answer, any potential reason that you try to give to the evil, the pain, and the suffering that exists in this world is going to be fundamentally insufficient. If God is all good and if God is all powerful, then the answer to, well, the reason why this happened is because God was trying to do something or wanted to accomplish something. The answer to that is, if God is all good and all powerful, then couldn't he find a different way? Why then must pain and suffering happen? Number two, any reason, any rationale that you give is unreasonable. You can't explain it logically, theologically. It just does not compute. And what I'm going to suggest to you, it is this absence of explanation that makes pain and suffering evil. Now catch this. This is really, really 
important. Any explanation that you attempt to give to pain or suffering in this world removes it from the category of evil. Let me give you an example. Now, I know it's obvious that I work out, but just to let you know. I know Ezekiel, you work out, don't you? Yeah. When you work out, does it hurt? Yes. Are you in pain when you work out? Do you feel like you suffer? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And for any of you who have ever engaged in a very difficult or challenging activity like working out and like gymnastics or even school, you know that you are suffering through it. And you're taking on some pain. It's a trial. It's the cross that I'm bearing. It's whatever it is, however you want to explain it, you're going through some pain, yes? Is it evil? Why? Well, you are, you're doing it to yourself. Maybe your parents are doing it to you. I don't know. It could go either way. Fundamentally, your suffering, your pain is not evil because there is a purpose. There's a goal. There's something that you are attempting to accomplish. And as soon as you put that end goal, or as soon as you put that purpose, or as soon as you put that reason upon it, your pain and your suffering is no longer in the category of evil. If your parents we're putting you through that without any hope or expectation of you accomplishing anything, that would be evil. And I would suggest to you that this is exactly the tension that we find ourselves in. It is the very absence of any explanation that puts pain and suffering into the category of evil. You cannot explain it. When tragedy happens... When suffering happens, when horrible, dark things in this world happen, like the things that you see in the news, don't attempt to provide an explanation for it. Because that, as soon as you provide an explanation, well, the reason why this had to happen is because dot, 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 you have removed it from the category of evil. And the reason why so many of us in this room are so frustrated and so hurt and offended when somebody comes to us and says, well, the reason why you're going through this is because dot, 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 is because we know intrinsically that this is evil and we don't want you to remove it from that category. Does this make sense? Don't take my pain and my suffering, the evil that I've experienced, and put a reason on it and put a purpose on it because there is none. This is my argument for why evil does exist in the world. Evil fundamentally, therefore, is the absence of reason. But the reason why I have this up there, do you have reason? Is because the existence of evil, by that definition, doesn't have the final word. And the reason why we're in a series called Hopes and Fears is because let us face evil for what it is by saying that there is no explanation. And here's the great tension and the great paradox of the Christian message. There is no reason. There is no explanation. There is no thing that you can put on that to make that purposeful or meaningful because it is evil. But there is absolutely nothing stopping us from after the fact, determining 
to actually provide purpose and meaning and hope from the thing that has happened. And here's the great paradox. The tragedy that has happened has no explanation. But sometimes the great hope and the great redemption of our Christian message is that we can turn that which has no explanation, that which has no reason, that which has no purpose, into something that can be redeemed for a purpose, for a hope, for a rescue. Do you know stories of people that have suffered unspeakable tragedy and out of that tragedy, they have transformed their lives around that tragedy and have launched themselves into this world to now redeem the very thing that they had to go through, to say, I'm doing this because I don't ever want anybody else to do this anymore. They have taken something that has no reason, no purpose, no explanation, and launched themselves into this world with full meaning, full purpose. And by providing a future hope, which is a future explanation, a future purpose, you diffuse the evil that was. If the definition, I know this is a little bit complicated, if the definition of evil is the absence of explanation or the absence of purpose or the absence of reason, then our response to that existence is I refuse to live without reason, purpose, and hope. I will live into this world with hope. I will live into this world with purpose. I will live into this world with a reason for my existence. And the reason why we have these two disparate explanations for all of this stuff in this world is because there are those of us who may have misapplied. We've taken a future hope and tried to provide that future hope as a reason for the evil in the first place. And that is where the problem comes in. There is a future hope. I'm going to take this tragedy and redeem it and repurpose it and find meaning. Evil will not have the final word in my life. I refuse to live without explanation. I refuse to live without meaning, purpose, and reason. I refuse to live without hope. So that's the future. And the problem and the conflict comes when we take the future hope and we try to retroactively apply it to the evil that existed. And that's usually where the problem comes in. So my very humble attempt at explaining this is by saying, be careful to not use a redemptive hope, which is to take this point of evil and turn it into something good and to use it as an explanation for the tragedy. That is the great challenge. That is where we find ourselves in conflict. And that is where we find ourselves in this very weird paradox of this season. And that is why we find ourselves now celebrating all of our hopes and all of our fears in one. So my friends, as we enter into the season, as we discuss all of our hopes and fears, next week we're going to talk about religion and violence. And we're going to ask a question, how do those two work out together and what are, what are the, what's the relationship between the two? Tonight I would just like for us to, one, accept that evil exists. Evil exists because there are things in this world that have no explanation. 
Evil exists in this world because there are things in this world that have no purpose. And there's no kind of reason that we could give to it that would make us feel any better. But evil will not have the last word. Evil will not defeat us. Evil will not be the final say. Because facing that evil, we provide hope. And we say, we will provide purpose. We will live with meaning. We will live with reason. And this is why Jesus has come. This is why all of our hopes and all of our fears are met in him. To come and provide a future redemptive hope to all of the evils that have existed. That's this season. And we hold these things in tension. And we will celebrate the advent, the coming of the one who has ultimately taken all of our hopes and all of our fears, all of our evil, all of our thinking around reason and purpose and meaning and has met every single one of those aspects of our complicated world in him and how we lived in the stories that we tell. All of our hopes and fears are met in him this coming night. Lord, I pray that in the midst of this very complicated issue and complicated season that we are in, that we can celebrate a future redemptive hope to all of the dark places that we find. Help us to bring redemption, rescue, love, resurrection, new life out of dead things. Help us to live into our future with meaning and purpose and a reason to live. And as we do, as you empower all of us to do that, Lord, I pray that in our lives and in this world, evil is fundamentally diffused and destroyed. That purposelessness will not have the final word. That meaninglessness will not have the final word. And that we will embrace your purpose, your reason, your hope. And I pray this in your name. Amen.